0: Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. This is Crystal Fault, the editor of the toolkit. My guest today, the director, Luca Guadagnino, with his new film, Suspiria, which is unlike anything I've ever seen before, including the original Suspiria. This is uh, this is supposed to be a remake. Uh, it's, it, it, that's what, well, it's got the same name. We all know the Dario Argento film. But it, right away, what struck me is, is that Argento's film is so hermetically sealed in this wonderful way and it seems as if your fascination, I know you're fascinated with that movie, but is um, the world in which it was made. Berlin, 1977, that seems to be, your films are always so grounded in a sense of place and time. And that seems to be as much as the original film from which you kind of, kind of grew this. Am, am I wrong about that? Well,
1: uh, uh, you're completely right. The point is this. I am a big, big, big fan of Dario Argento. Mm. I am one of the Of those people who started to worship him since I was very young. I remember that uh, um, I I tried to collect all the books I could about him and there were many because Mm. uh, let's not uh, get gotten mistaken here. Dario became kind of a legend fairly late, particularly in Italy. But when I was growing up, Dario was considered like a be movie director, and uh, the mainstream uh, world wasn't really bu- uh, much interested in him. He was kind of popular because he kind of, uh, in the way he looked, uh, encompassed the cinema he was doing. I remember that he was, he was a kind of a prominent uh, figure. He was invited to TV shows, but he wasn't given the, the wand of uh, uh, being a master, and not only in his own way as a film director of horror film, but in general. And I felt that was kind of uh, depressing, and I really, like, I was, as all the fans, very, very motivated to make sure that uh, people recognized his greatness. Then I started to realize that other people in the world loved Dario. Uh, I remember when I saw the Evil Dead, the Evil Dead by Sam Raimi, a movie, another great movie that was really important to me. I also started to read interviews about Ra- from, from Raimi, and, and Raimi was saying how important it was for him to look at, to see Suspiria in 1977 mm. in his uh, hometown theater. Um, so I wasn't alone, mm. and that was a good feeling. Um, uh, um, so it's, I also, like, in growing up, I grew up with the Larios film, and I, because I think I'm not a sentimental person, I was able to see through the prism of the f- passion and, and enthusiasm and love for Dario's movie, what Dario's movie was lacking. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in a diminishing way at all. I still believe Suspiria is a masterpiece. It's just that I personally started to be interested in other stuff as well as Dario's cinema. I, for instance, was understanding cinema as a sort of way to discuss uh, 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 the conflicts in the relationship between people, where Dario was devoid of any sense of psychological uh, investigation through his film. That's something that he has never been interested into, which is great. I I don't think that all films should be kind of bound to tell the story of the interior uh, aspects of a character. That is something that I grew. Up being interested. So when my passion for Suspiria and my obsession to, uh, more than obsession, my stubbornness in remaking it, which never changed, even though there was a moment in which, uh, because I'm a realist, uh, uh, the movie was handed to my very dear friend uh, David, whom I wish the best of luck for this week opening of Halloween, David Gordon Green, I never parted away from the idea of making it, but I grew into Understanding how to start from Dario, going into the direction of what I was now interested in going to. Which definitely has to deal with uh, history, context, a space, and the relationship between people. And uh, so when finally, in the last, let's say, four years, I sat with David Kajanek, my writer,
0: my who he wrote um, "Bigger Splash" with right Who he wrote "Bigger, Bigger Splash", Splash
1: yeah. and, and who had this amazing uh, series, "The Terror," right. out, uh, last year? Mm-hmm.
0: He's, David David was on the podcast for "The Terror." He's, he's wonderful. Um, he's, he's, yeah, such he's a, p-
1: such an articulate, thoughtful, witty, uh, intelligent person, and uh, and uh, um, I think David he's a humanist uh, and uh, also he's a very dark humanist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not shying ever away from seeing uh, what we are made of. And uh, the experience of working together in Bigger Splash was so riveting. And the friendship was so so strong that I, I, uh, there was no doubt that he should have been the one to adapt a new version of Suspiria. And when we started talking about it, one thing stuck, which was the, the year in which Dario's movie was released, which was 1977. And both uh, David and I, we share a common interest in uh, historical context and also the kind of films that they were made at the time and most importantly given the the the, the context is berlin the generation of filmmakers in berlin who were playing at the time with cinema and in particular the great fassbinder
0: That's who I feel the most. And, uh, and that's yeah. where we landed.
1: We landed. I hope the movie doesn't sound like a mocking of Fassbinder. Mm. I think that every time I do a movie, I try to think, OK, how would Fassbinder th- would think of mm-hmm. things in this context, more than let's imitate the style of Fassbinder. And that's how we landed in the film you saw.
0: Well, because Fassbinder is such a, a product of, I mean, he's such an individually great artist, but he is, you, one can feel, um, his time in his film. You could feel Germany and in, in, in the 70s in, in those films that were made around there. And there's an element...
1: Also, also sorry to interrupt mm, you. No. Also because the, the generation of Fassbinder mm. and the times in which Fassbinder was operating, I think were very fertile, conflictual, violent. But there was a moment of consciousness of a generation of youth who had to confront the horror of the past and the oblivioness of their generation, of their parents' mm. generation. So not that every generation is better than any other one, but I would say that one was committed to a, uh, in a, to a great deal to a sort of uh, understanding of oneself.
0: And that's something that you've taken, I think, probably top line most in this film of anything, is that unearthing of that feeling of um, a sense of... The danger of not reconciling with such a, a horrific past.
1: Right. When it's Susie Banyan says to Madame Blanc, "Why everybody thinks the worst is uh, over?" I think it's a very beautiful and telling line that David wrote, mm-hmm. and that Dakota delivers so wonderfully. Because really, uh, we don't uh, make our we don't learn from past often, and those witches uh, they are the product of past. They are the kind of fossil of the past. They are they've been living for so long even if it's not said it's implied that these people is there since like I don't know 300 years 400 years that uh, i think it's
0: uh, it's important that
1: the horror movie deals with that
0: is the feminism also a product of the 70s that you're taking this is such a this is a, a this film has in its kind of unearthing of reconciling with the past it is told through this very uniquely um, feminine lens and i i I don't know how much of that is a product i don't know much about what was going on with feminism there or if that's something that you brought to it well i said that this is a very personal movie and i and i and i mean it
1: I had a little, uh, not quarrelling, but uh, a very good friend of mine with uh, someone who I trust his wisdom in cinema wrote me a mail saying that he saw the movie and hated it (laughs) (laughs) and and (laughs) found the movie to be completely devoid of the uh, kind of uh, uh, um, warmth that he uh, uh, assimilated to me. and I replied back uh, that I love the movie and that I, I respect his position and I have no problem with someone telling me that the movie is bad, fine, but I stand for my movie and also that I'm not just one thing. I'm mm. not just the warm, sunny-drenched, uh, romantic uh, filmmaker. I, I have many aspects of myself. One thing that is important to be said is that I think that the world of, femi- of the female and the feminine and this company of women, it is something that I've been part of all my life. Uh, it has to deal with many, many aspects of my personality and uh, we don't need to go deep there, but definitely I have been growing up in the world of female, spending my time with, with women, and when I became an adolescent in Palermo in Sicily in the 80s, I. I had these epiphanies like I always was going out with the older people and I became friends with um, the older girlfriends who were activists uh, in... uh, in these, uh, let's say, f- post-77 feminist movements, in it in there were these called place called Casa delle Donne, home for women, which were literally the associations where the women were gathering, and there were books about feminism, and and there were um, uh, m- gathering where people were discussing feministic topics and stuff like that. So that was for me an absolute normal uh, landscape of my upbringing and my growing up. And um, and I think Dario's movie was kind of on the, on the antithesis of that, you know, when the girls and the women were out in the streets screaming, tremble, tremble, the witches are back, and, and really uh, fiercely a, a, a taking on them the, the patriarchal appellative of witch mm. and reversing it and swapping it. Dario was kind of being uh, approaching witches in the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Witches are evil, witches are trying to destroy the innocence, and they have to be wiped out. That's what Suspiria is at the core, mm-hmm. which makes the movie be a fairy tale in the, th- in the, in the, in the classical sense. Mm-hmm. But for me, I'd always found a, a very strong woman, a very tough woman, a very provocative woman, the woman, the, 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 the kind of woman that I'm used to. I think that uh, in general I like tough, provocative, and, uh, and uh, unreconciled people, and that's more true for women. So uh, uh, um, it is personal in that regard, and the feminism aspect of the film is really rooted in that upbringing, and it's very rooted
0: in my sense of uh, um, community. And the thing that was working so incredible in this film, well, there's a lot of things that are incredible, but um, there's a physicalization of, of that power of, uh, of, of women. Uh, even even in everybody's going to go towards the dance and the rituals and stuff, but even just, I think of Chloe even in just in that psychiatrist's office, the energy and the freneticness and stuff. I'm it glad it you
1: say that. First of all, because I love that sequence. <laughs> I think Chloe is amazing in the sequence, and Lutz Ebersdorf is amazing <laughs> in that sequence.
0: Are we still calling him that? Yeah, (laughs) let's call him (laughs) him that. Let's
1: call Tilda's uh, performance uh, as Lutz. Lutz. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Sorry I interrupted you.
0: No, no, no. But I mean, but the thing about this is in this, um, uh, that element is something uh, where you are, you know, I think so many people know you from Call Me By Your Name, although you had so many great films before that. Where um the filmmaking is in intentionally, I think invisible, it's not invisible, but it's you know, and this is something where that physicality in uh, that movement is something where it, it's almost Wellesian in, in how much you are uh, accessing the medium and and, and, and creating something. We did it as
1: such an incredible uh, precise, uh to say because I, I'm a bit restless these days and I, I remember when I did Call Me By Your Name being in preparation for Suspiria and already Suspiria foreseeing it as a very complicated film to achieve. I deliberately decided with Sion Bu, and with Walter Fasano, my director of photography and my editor, to approach Call Me in the most, as you said, invisible way. Um, to try to think of the movie in the way in which a great director like Eric Romero or Maurice Pialat would have approached it. So we decided to be as unobtrusive with the medium as possible. And and I found some sort of, uh, it was uplifting for me. It gave me a great energy. For instance, it gave me the possibility of uh, uh, truly appreciating the process of filmmaking. Mm which I don't like. And then we went on- The off. actual
0: production, the actual getting it's like so the that's
1: production. the part you don't no, like. No, no. Yeah. I just don't like it because I, it goes, it, it is really not fit for my personality. The thinking because of it, it the creating anxiety. it in your head, the creating it in your
0: head or creating it in post, that's something that's exciting you, the actual, then I have to- The actual
1: thing, yeah. when, when, when you have tried, when, when all the people together have really managed to, to be ready to go, and then everything can happen, and the time. These two things are really too much for me. It gives me a lot of anxiety. That's one moment of my life where I'm more anxious, anxious, I sleep less well, and I have a reflux. So, uh, uh, uh. but in the case of Call Me, because we said, hand, up, uh, hand down, how do you say? We said, no, no medium. Like, it's more about them. And we are just looking at them in the most unobtrusive way possible. It was really smooth. But then, boom, get into Suspiria and you're back to that kind of kind of uh, uh, language that needs a lot of articulation but i, rea- I realized that uh, unfortunately or fortunately every movie is uh, its own movie and i and i think that uh, i i now know that i uh, i admire my, myself when i am eager and able to understand that every story you tell has to be told in the way in which the story needs to be told instead of putting myself as a filmmaker in front of the story and Use my style with big brackets. Um, um, admiring a lot of uh, great uh, formalist filmmakers who are always applying their style to what they do. And the first great filmmaker I, th- I can think of is uh, director Park, Chan-wok, mm-hmm. who has uh, always so precise and, and always... You, can y- you can't uh, miss... Uh, he's the director of his own films. Mm-hmm. But for me that's, ra- that's something that I feel as a contrivancy for my own films. And the, but but Suspiria needed uh, a kind of a grand uh, opulent uh, um, obsessive uh, uh, cinematic language to achieve uh, what was the David uh, God, the David Kajanek script.
0: The, the dance sequences in particular that I um, have to imagine in terms of what they required, but also the collaboration there, because you, I mean, the way you shot it is incredible, the way the cross-cutting and the way that the, 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 the violence is transferred, but you also had to get that in a dance, and I have to imagine, it, it just the choreography and and the movement, before you can even put your camera on it, is something that's so... The
1: real, real, real maddening moment element of that was to try to be consistent in one thing, not to work CGI,
0: Mm.
1: not to work with CGI. Like, you know, like you're doing a $20 million movie with Amazon and K-Period Media, so it's a big movie, Big for me for sure mm. because my biggest at the time was a bigger splash, which was like 10. And, the, and then Call Me was 3.5, so I boom, boom. But at the same time, try not to stick with like a, a lazy language uh, that is like the typical one you go for. You have problematic sequence to, to deal with, CGI. You have to create something twisted, CGI. And in fact, I wanted the opposite of that. I want a physical, primal relationship between the uh, mise-en-scene and the subject of the mise-en-scene. So that was the most important, uh, more than important, most challenging thing. Because sometimes people, they don't understand. And so you have to convince. I mean, at the age of 46, I was really still there, like, believe me, it's going to work. And people are like, no, it's not going to work. And uh, please, it's going to work. And the fight was really tiring. But, the, but then, you know, like we had, for instance, you, I think you were referring partially to the sequence in which he, he, the, 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 mo- the dance uh, of uh, Susie Bannion has an effect on, on the other room where uh, Olga well, is uh, trying to escape mm-hmm. the company. Uh, for that sequence, it, it is mostly the work of performance. Dakota Johnson. For the most complicated movements of dance, Tania, the the double of Dakota, on the one hand, and Yelena Fokina, who is an incredible dancer, and she had made her featured debut as an actress in this movie fantastic, who has such an incredible capacity of movement and dislocating her own body that we really didn't use anything but her own performance. And, of course, Damien led the choreographer, mm. who worked with her on the movements. We built, we said, okay, she's doing this, so what happens if this movement of the arm, a, a, let's say, stretched out, can impact uh, the body of Olga in the other room? And so we were seeing all the kind of possibilities. And every possibility was had to do and deal with the way in which Elena could bend or jump with her own body. Never use one... A single platform, or how do you call it? The um, when they put the um, the, the strings, the harness, the, 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 and yeah, the yeah. thing. Nothing. It was just her, and the room was all full full of mirror. And uh, and uh, so the mirror is real. Mm. So we just had to take off the camera, digitally. Nothing's particularly complicated. Long, mm. but we did that. We did need. We didn't need to reproduce the the reflection through green screen and all the bullshit it was really physically in the space and uh, and I think that 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 it's really seventies also you know like apart from the the, the changing canceling things from the screen it's really physical it's really like something I wish the audience will feel on her on their own body mm-hmm. I don't know where we landed here but that's
0: <laughs> you referenced the uh, opulence of this movie and it. And the thing that I find most stunning is it is very grounded in uh, winter, in Germany, in this world, in which, you know, right away the palette that you're painting on is, is limited. It's, it's, it's gray. The, I, the, these places are... this. It's, there's even something very institutional about these places that you shot, and yet and I'm thinking in particular about the cinematography, within that limited palette, there is incredible beauty and opulence uh, that you found. I'm glad you
1: say d- d- because d- d- one thing I keep hearing about this film is that it's muted and there are almost black and white. No, it's not black and white. We, we, me, Sion Imbal Weinberg, Marisa, uh, our fantastic uh, Lombardo, our fantastic set decorator, and Julia Piersanti, the costume designer, we all agreed on a, very limited amount of colors we wanted to work with, browns, mud greens, uh, muted blues, very little red, some okra, but within this range we really went for it and we really went for all the possible shades and nuances of it. We really wanted to make something very vivid and tridimensional with this limitation of colors, which in a way it's also a greater freedom for the mm, representation of this world, I would say. He is a
0: genius. I, I, the more, and yeah, I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't. He's a genius. He's, I a, he's a genius. The layers in this thing, and it's effortless. And one, because you know, we're one thing w- you have to know mm. that that we shot in thirty-five. Mm-hmm.
1: Sayumbu and I always prefer to work with uh, uh, filters in front of the camera. And colored light in the, in the on set, mm-hmm. so that when we go in post-production to do the DI and the, and the digital correction, it's just a very heaven heavenly work layer. It's not something that you have to do from scratch. Mm-hmm. If you see the footage coming from the negative straight to the editorial room, you'll be stunned to see how great is it already there. I'm from the other century, the 20th century, so I'm used to that. I don't understand. The digital filmmaking where you have raw images, mm-hmm. and then eventually you go into the DI and you sculpt the color and the light through all these masks, portioning of the space, and a lot of heavy work. This I don't understand. I think it's a cheap uh, uh, kind of uh, cheat for enough to the audience. But Seung Bu, of all the cinematographers I worked, and I work with some fantastic ones, he. Has a sculptural, painterly way of using the light that is stunning,
0: stunning. Yeah. Um, the Tom York music in this, obviously, music always adds a layer, but in it, in in this, it felt like a layer that wasn't there that you wanted there. It felt like you were at. It felt like we were accessing something mm-hmm. where we you wanted us to kind of like pull out of this intensity or or i don't know it just felt there was something it it worked incredibly but it didn't work in the way that i'm used to song working in movies i'm I'm wondering what probably because uh, the first uh, the first uh, movement was to hire
1: to hire to 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 ask uh, mr york if he was possibly interested in considering doing a soundtrack for this movie. And when he said yes, that's the, basic of our, the basis of our conversations, the soundtrack. It is only after a few months of conversation that before shooting, he sent me a few cues. And then he sent this other cue. And, and, and I put the cue on. And there was the, this beautiful melody. And there was like without words. So I said, "Oh my God, he wants to sing!" But I didn't. I never spoke to him about sing songs in the film. And that's when I realized that his concept of the soundtrack was really like a, like almost like a total piece of art that encompassed music, symphonic music, electronic music, songs, choruses. Amazing! Wow, he's amazing.
0: What, what what made you reach for, I mean, he's amazing, but what made you reach for him f- for this film? What was it about this well, one that made I, him? Well, I, I, here's the story.
1: In 2005, I had made a movie called Melissa P with, mm-hmm. with the, uh, Maria Valverde. And me and my beloved uh, Walter Fasano, we had created a soundtrack with the help of Carlo Antonelli, who at the time was the editor-in-chief of Rolling Stone Italy, great guy and great, great, great uh, knowledge about music, and, and with Carlo and Walter we said, why don't we make a soundtrack for this movie ba- made out of 40 songs of the now, for the kids of the time. So for the 16-year-old people all in the world, so, and it was really impressive. We did it that in a little irresponsible ways because we didn't ha- we didn't know if we could afford that. But we we presented this to the studio, and the studio hated it because they found that not having a team in the soundtrack, but being going from song to song, like in Goodfellas, you know, you could not really uh, as an audience. Connect with, my, with Melissa in the way in which Hollywood believes a soundtrack makes you believe with the, with, uh, to connect with the character, you know, like almost uh, uh, with the sound, with, with the song, with the music, almost pushing you to feel what uh, you should feel only by experiencing the film. And so we, he, they obliged me to, uh, to hire a composer. And that was a very bad experience because for me, I mean, I, I'm a control freak and music is so important and the relationship between music and image is so important that I ended up being in a place in which I, I did not recognize my movie because my movie wasn't there. I, I was watching something in which there was a voice that I didn't want. So I promised myself never again I was going to work with a composer ever again. Neither I was going to go away from what I wanted. So I Am Love is a movie made out of the repertoire of John Adams, Biggest Splash, uh, it's different sources of repertoire, including John Adams, Jobim, the Rolling Stones, and Call Me By Your Name is all piano pieces from uh, great music from Debussy, uh, Sakamoto, John Adams, and then I, I, I invited uh, Soufiane to do these two songs. I was very lucky that he wanted to do them. But on Suspiria, I thought it was a cheat to use let's say Giacinto Scelsi, Penderecki, or John Adams. Mm -hmm. Because already Stanley Kubrick had done it, and in a way that is unsurpassable, in my opinion. And also because Dario Argento Suspiria had this soundtrack by The Goblin that spoke to that generation in such an important way, that my thread of thought went through, okay, if I have to consider someone who to do the soundtrack and not use repertoire, it should be someone that speaks for my generation, that is my voice, the voice of my generation. And the answer was quick and in, in, uh, inequivocable, was Tom York and the, rad- and the Radiohead, but mostly Tom. Because you know, not only he has done Radiohead, but he has made Atom for Peace and uh, many other stuff by himself. So for me, Tom was really my, the voice of my generation. So I, I, I was ready to, if in case he was going to say no, I was ready basically to use again John Adams and Penderecki, because I did not felt anybody else could have done it, and John and uh, Tom never made a soundtrack before. No. I, no, I am now ready to work with a great
0: composer. So in a lot of this, this is his reaction to what you were doing, too. It was very much him feeding off it. Less well, he had a very wonderful uh, interpretation of the script. Mm. He
1: came on set. He saw the set. He came to see our shoot, shooting. We were sending him material all the time. His relationship with my editor was great. And, uh, and his commitment to this was amazing. I, I can't wait to do another movie with him, oh. if he wants to do it with wow, That would be
0: wonderful. Um, this movie seems... You, you've spoken a lot about um, what... Um, Argento's movie meant to you and and a lot of this I think feels like Your reaction to that it's based on those emotions to it less than 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 the thing itself I I I, I pose this question like that because not because I'm looking for details or or spoilers here, but You know reading this stuff about blood on the tracks Which is an album (laughs) that has meant a lot to me, you know And there's I think all of us have movies playing in our heads to that is, is is that we can talk about that, or we can talk about just in general your process? But is, is that something? It, it, I think we think about adaptation and we think about remakes. It's often more, you know, adapting the feelings that you have to the thing. Is 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 that is there something to that? Is that the inspiration for doing this? Is this, is that the inspiration for doing this blood on the tracks?
1: Well. That's a great question. And I think I need to think for a moment because you are illuminating something for me that I didn't thought about. It's true that I as a filmmaker, I don't think I exist outside the context of my emotional upbringing as a filmmaker and as a as a person. And that all of my projects, many of my projects, they come from my upbringing. So yeah, I like that what you said. Blood on the Tracks is different because it is an idea of Rodrigo Teixeira, the producer of uh, one of the producers of Call Me by Your Name, whom I started to have a great relationship with. Who came to me? He had this intuitive capacity to understand that I was good for that. And he said to me, you know, like I have the right to make a movie out of Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. What do you think? And I found very good this concept because I, as I said many times, I don't believe in originality in filmmaking. Mm. I think filmmaking is really a question of point of view. I think Stanley Kubrick never made an original story. He always made movies from source. I think that's true. And he made, and in doing that, he made some of the most strikingly personal and unique films of his generation, and not only.
0: Mm.
1: Like, if you think of one of his best for me, which is uh, uh, Barry Lyndon from Thackeray, I'm, I mean, I love the book, but the movie, it's Kubrick, you know, it's not like an uh, illustration of Thackeray. I think, I, I understood that Kubrick's uh, interest in, or in, in, uh, in, uh, in non interested in original stories, lied in the fact that he needed control. And I think that having that control in your hands, the possibility of really de- dealing with something that exists and working around it, and really making something of unsentimental about it, it it frees you, instead of being bound of the originality of your story, which it's completely a gratuitous element. Because I mean, since *A Thousand Nights and One Night*, there is nothing original that has been written. Nothing. Everything can be brought back to the canon of one part kind of a story. So um, it is too strong as as a thing for me, the idea of of adapting a movie, of adapting a book, Mm -hmm. adapting an album, particularly if that album means so much, like Blood on the Tracks does. Also it was, uh, for me, good to not to say yes, because I've been granted by Rodrigo, who is a renaissance man, the freedom to say th- a, a thing like something that may have sound provocative and gratuitous. That was like I do it only if Richard Lagravanese is eager to write it, which I didn't know. I didn't know Richard. I knew him from his movies. Like I was like wow by his career, and he said yes. So I mean, there was a real possibility that the, the thing never happened, because maybe Richard was going to say, no, I'm not interested.
0: Mm. So that's it's li- that speaks to the element, I think, of what you're talking about, is, is less like, I know exactly what I want to do this, but it's something that that's almost a, do I have control? Do I have the ability to... to, to that's, that's why I did a movie called Bigger Splash, from a movie that I
1: didn't like, La Piscine. Mm. I found La Piscine quite, quite lame. Like uh, it was so ridiculous when La Biggest Splash came out in France, and all these French f- critics, who apparently are the children of the French New Wave critics of the times, started to say, "Oh, it's outrageous! The movie by Jacques Derrida was so beautiful, and now this piece of shit of Italian <laughs> filmmaker come and does this to our movie." <laughs> Fuck you! You hated La Piscine as much as I did when the movie came out because. When Godard and Truffaut and all these great filmmakers were dealing with life in the streets, this guy came on board and made a a little bourgeois uh, story about uh, Alain Delon and Romy Schneider hitting each other with a thread of uh, a piece Mm -hmm. of of, of a tree. Come on. So I said yes because of what you said. I said yes because when I spoke to my friend at Studio Canal, I said I do it only if it's going to happen in Pantelleria, Mm It deals with rock and roll people, I direct and produce. Mm-hmm. And they bizarrely said yes to all the three things. And because they said yes, I said cool, let's do it. It's not about, I think like in Italy uh, after the 80s, uh, because the Italy crashed, the, the cultural life of Italy crashed on its weight because we were really... Fantastic! The fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties—if you think cinematically, musically, literature was amazing—and then we we got the eighties. We got the TV from Berlusconi, and we got this uh, sort of hedonism that everything was had to be light. So everything was wiped off, and there was no more capacity of creating new <laughs> form.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and uh, um, so cinema became all about, if you wanted to be an auteur, someone writing the story. So the story, if you had the, the, your name written on, uh, on the script, that was what made you an auteur. But I grew up with Hitchcock being an auteur, yeah. and I think he has never written one single script of in his entire life.
0: It's how he structured it and where the audience is in reference to what he's doing. Yeah, and he yeah. makes you see it, he's controlling how you see it. Exactly.
1: Having said that, I love my writers very much. <laughs>
0: Luca, thank you for your time. Thank you for this movie. This thing is—it uh, is a layered cake that uh, is 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 worth returning to because I, I after after seeing it the first time, I went and and thought about it and then even read up a little bit about what was going on in '77. Came back and saw it and it it, it gave even so much more and I was just kind of. Blown away. There's there's so much here. You made like three movies in one here. There's so, so much here, and it's uh, it's it's like nothing else I've seen. That's uh, <laughs> so, so go
1: to see the movie in theaters. De whoever usual. is listening, oh, please. To this I podcast. can't even imagine.
0: I can't even imagine seeing those dance sequences at home the, for the first time. Uh, Luca, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.